This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard, who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is God's word. For those of you who might have slipped in late and are new to City Church, my name's Ruth Sen, and I'm a weekend in my new job as associate pastor for City Church, and so welcome again. As you may know, I just moved here from Chapel Hill, and it's a major transition for me. Uh, for the last eight years, I planted a church in downtown Chapel Hill, Carborough, and it was my church, and it was my hometown, it was where I was born and raised, it was where I went to school, and so my life was there. And my wife and I and our kids were ecstatic about being here, but it's a whole new world. It's a new city. There's new traditions, new customs. We had to find where the Publix was. And we don't use Publixes in Chapel Hill. You know, we need to know where Target is. We need to go. I need to know where Lowe's was. I still don't have a lawnmower. There's all these transition points. I'm like, oh, this is so overwhelming. I still have cardboard in my house. And so it's hard. But what's harder is the relationships. My wife and kids are like, well, who are going to be our friends? My son's going to, who's going to play with me? And so there's, there's this grief and there's this pain, yet there's this hope and expectation. And as you've done major transitions, you understand that it, it leads time for it to introspection. It gives space for you to kind of look around going, well, what has my last eight years been like? And what do I want the next eight years to be like? And I've been asking those same questions. When I've looked about the strengths and the weaknesses of how I've loved God's people last eight years, and I look with hope at the next eight years of my life here, I hope I'm here longer than eight years, but I'm just using that phrase. You know, I'm trying to figure out, well, what am I going to do and how do I want life to change? And there's a common theme that keeps rising up for me to the surface. And for me, it's hypocrisy. And I want to explain that. This morning we've already sung and beautiful songs, well-written, where we're captivated, where God has won my affection, where Jesus the joy of my heart, where his grace is boasting my tongue, where we're dissolved by his goodness. And those words often, for me, sting. Like you, with me, there's a gap between the rhetoric and the reality of my life. And the longer I'm a Christian, I find this gap widening. Don't get me wrong, I love Jesus more now than I did five years ago, but the more I grow in my Christian faith, I look and I'm like, I feel like such a hypocrite. 
I call people, I preach a gospel of grace, I exhort people in godliness and grace, and I often find what I encourage people to do, I find lacking in my own life. And that tension just seems to grow and to grow and grow, and I feel like a fraud. Look, I know I'm not the only one that feels this way, am I? You know, there's times where you just wake up and you're like, when will people in City Church discover I'm a fraud? When will they see that I'm just a sinner, I'm barely hanging on, I don't have the same faith that maybe people think that I have? It's a universal problem many Christians in the States struggle with. Mike did a great job with this last Sunday, but Jonah gives us a story where he doesn't look good in any part of it. From cover to cover, he is a hypocrite. He's just a religious professional, and there's nothing good about him in any page. In the midst of this beautiful book, there's this chapter where he prays, and it's eloquent, it's masterful, and he literally weaves the psalms together, and when you break it apart and see which which psalms he steals from, you're blown away by what an amazing, amazing speaker he is. But this prayer of repentance is not to be emulated. Rather, it serves as a foil, a window into real repentance. It's a pathway to move away from hypocrisy, hypocrisy that we can often, too often relate to, to more genuine worship. So Jonah, in this prayer, in this prayer of repentance, he invites us to do many things, four things I want to highlight this morning, to engage, to cry out, to hate, and to rejoice. That's what it means to repent. Let's begin with engaging. Jonah 2, 3. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. This is from Psalm 88 and Psalm 42. Jonah 2, 5, which he steals from Psalm 69. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. And then we get to Jonah 2, 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Look at what it took for Jonah to pray, to even begin to engage his God. First of all, there's God's call. I'm going to do this real fast since Mike did this last week. But there's God's call. Uh, Jonah's a religious professional. He's the prophet. He's like a lawyer, a spokesperson, the PR rep for God. And so when God speaks, he speaks through Jonah. And Jonah did a great job in the nation state of Israel. And so then God calls him to go to Nineveh. And Jonah knows what's going on. God's grace is about to go to the Assyrian Empire. God means to do a mighty work in this horrible nation, and I want no part of it. And so he doesn't engage God. He doesn't go to God with his fears and his questions, but he runs the other direction, literally the opposite direction from Nineveh, and he never engages God. He he boards a ship going the opposite direction. He doesn't engage God. There's a storm, a storm that made sailors cry out like weak men. It made sailors buckle their knees, yet he didn't engage God. And then he gets into a belly of a fish after he himself wants to commit suicide and have them hurl him into the deeps of the water. Now for me, this is a beautiful picture of the gospel, of the good news that Christianity has to offer. You see, God loves us too much to leave us alone. That's the worst thing he could do. He understands we could easily be enamored with so many things our life has to offer, enamored with ourselves, enamored with our own agenda, and easily annoyed with God's trials and his love and his ruthless love for us. And so, filled with love for us, God wants nothing less than for us to be filled with him and transformed by his love. Here's another way of asking that. What did Jesus die on the cross for? 
for the Christianity we often settle for? Oh, no, no. Nothing less than having you full of his presence, transformed by his Holy Spirit, captivated by his love and mercy. And so he sends trials and storms and waves and waves until we begin to engage him because he will settle for nothing less than you being full of him. The question for Jonah is the question for us is will you engage him? The last five years for my wife and I have been extremely difficult And one of the reasons they've been very difficult is my wife has had a tremendous amount of health issues. I want to say now that she's actually doing great. But up to like the last six months, it's been rough going. Five years ago, our son was really young and suddenly she started losing weight and her emotions were all over the place. The next thing you know, she was bedridden and we realized she had Graves' disease. If you're not familiar with Graves' disease, it's when your body decides it doesn't like your thyroid anymore and it attacks it. And your thyroid regulates your heart And it also regulates your emotions. And oh my goodness, my wife was everywhere. And then she lost her energy. And we had this beautiful three-year-old boy at the time. And there she was laying in bed. And I had to take care of her. When she got better from that, we had a miscarriage. When she got better from that, her Graves' disease came back out of remission. When she got better from that, she had Lily, which is a beautiful gift. But when she got out of that, or with, I don't know how to say that. When she had Lily, (laughs) uh, there came her Graves' disease again. And then when things started getting better again, we started getting back in rhythm. We realized that my wife's innards were all wrong. She had a floppy colon. Typically when you're a baby, all your stuff kind of floats out here. And then it kind of winds in through your belly button. Hers didn't wind in very well. And so everything wasn't in its appropriate place. And what happened about once a month is she would have massive vomiting, horrible abdominal pain, have to go to the emergency room to be settled. And she did this rhythmically. And we're like, oh my goodness. And so a week she was out, a week she was recovering. I tried to get four weeks of work done in two weeks. It was a very, very difficult time for us. And I found myself during this past five years being so, so frustrated so angry. God, what are you doing? I'm trying to plant a church in Chapel Hill. The last seven churches before me all failed. I'm supposed to be your guy. You know, if there's anyone that should be healthy right now, it's my wife and me. I don't understand what you're doing. Now, looking back, I can see that Jesus had a greater agenda. His agenda was actually teaching me how to love my wife and not my job how to love my wife and not my ambition and how to serve her. And it pains me that God had to wound my wife to teach me to love my wife. He began to teach me to pray and realize that I may be gifted, but I'm also arrogant. And I need to rest not on my gifts, but his grace and his power. I began to realize that, you know, sometimes I need to wait on God and trust his promises and be patient. And God's starting to teach me that I can bank on his power and his might. Now, I didn't help the process because, you know, I'm trying to get going. I'm trying to move fast. I often had these trite, true sayings of the gospel. God's going to take me through this. And all these things were true, but they weren't helpful because I didn't engage my emotions in that process. And I just try to motor through. If we're ever going to really repent, if our repentance is ever going to move beyond the repentance of Jonah, we have to learn to engage God's ruthless love his discipline, the trials that he sends us. We have to engage these trials head on. And the way we engage these head on is by connecting to them, allowing ourselves to connect with the emotions that come with all these trials that we detest and embrace the chaos that it brings with it. 
And if you're like me, I would rather eat glass than be that powerless and be that angry and be that despondent and be that frustrated. I've found in my life pastoring churches that we Christians can have emotional intelligence of about this. You know, especially in Presbyterian churches, man, we can, we can sidle off some creeds and theology and have a grand old time. But when it comes to engaging our heart and, and having a, a real substance to what we're feeling and experiencing with God, well, we don't want to touch it. God is more than able to handle it. Actually, I think it's his preference for us to be engaged in that chaos. He's not asking us to make sense of the trials he brings to us. He's not asking us to even understand it, nor is he looking for us to provide a theological evaluation that makes us and him feel okay about what's happening in our lives. Rather, repentance starts with us just turning to him and engaging the chaos that's there. How are you at engaging God's ruthless love the trials, the discipline that he brings your way because he wants you to be full of him? How are you turning towards him? What emotions and chaos is he kicking up for you? And are you enjoying, are you connecting to it? Enjoying is the wrong word. And how have you invited God's people, maybe members of your city group into that chaos? The second thing you'll see from this prayer is not only, not only does Jonah invites us to engage, he invites us to cry out. Look at Jonah 2.2. 2. If you're keeping score, he uses Psalm 3, Psalm 120, Psalm 18, and Psalm 30 in this passage. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. This prayer starts for a cry of help, but for me, this is the height of his hypocrisy. His prayer is intimidating, as I said before. It's well-composed, it's masterful, but it's not real. When did Jonah ever cry? When did he ever cry? Let's go back to Jonah 1. Again, Mike did a great job with this. Did he cry when God called him to go to Nineveh? That would have been a great time for him to go, nah, I just can't do this, God. Did he cry when he's heading in the wrong direction? No. Did he cry on the ship? No, he took a nap. No, did he cry when the storm was going crazy? No. Did he cry when the sailors say, we're about to die, what should we do? It's your fault. You know, he didn't have to be thrown in. He could have just had the boat turned around. Well, when the sailors say, what do we do to make the storm stop? You made this mess. He could have said, I need to go to Nineveh. Can you turn us around? Boom, no storm. He would rather die and be drowned in the ocean than see Nineveh experience God's grace. God did not rescue him because he cried for help. And so what stopped Jonah from crying for help? I think you'll recognize this and resonate with it as well. He was powerless. He was helpless. He was confused by his God. He felt abandoned, maybe, possibly, by what God was doing. Definitely disappointed with this God, not understanding why his nation, Israel, was ruled by an evil king and things were deteriorating and he would want to bless Nineveh. He was definitely angry and he didn't want to deal with the elephant in the room or the fish. Jonah had no desire to tackle the bigger issues. He didn't want to face his sin, his nationalism, his racism, his cultural and religious pride, his self-righteous nature, meaning he deserved God's grace and this nation did not. Maybe he didn't want to embrace, embrace the shallowness of his understanding of God's grace of which he was supposed to be the national spokesman. You see, repentance is horribly messy. You cannot avoid it. You cannot sanitize it. You cannot control it. This is typically all the things we do with repentance. 
See, with real repentance, it's more than just engaging the sin and God's ruthless love. It's, it's crying out for help. And sometimes all we can muster is a cry for help. And that may be the most beautiful cry of repentance that comes from your life. Again, God's not asking you to manage it. He's not asking you to weave together the Psalms to make a beautiful prayer for him. And sometimes engaging and crying for help really looks like you just yelling help. Masterful words are unnecessary. What are you trying to sanitize and avoid and control right now? What are you experiencing that you need to pray back to God with groans and sighs? Are you crying out about anything right now? And if so, who knows what you're crying out about? Where are you powerless and helpless right now? What sins are eating your lunch? Are you engaging them? That if nothing else, you're crying out. The third thing you'll see from this prayer of repentance is not only we invited to engage, not only we invited to cry out, we're invited to hate. Look at Jonas 2, 8. Again, he's borrowing from Psalm 31. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit their grace that could be theirs. Now, this is true. What Jonah says is absolutely true. It's not true of him at this moment, but it's true. He's actually a vivid example of forfeiting God's grace for worthless idols. Now, we've kind of covered his idols already. Cultural elitism, racism, a high view of himself. He completely got his identity from these things. And that's what an idol is. It goes way beyond the statue or figurine of some unimaginable God. No, rather, it's the things we replace God with. It's, it's the places we go to build identity ourselves apart from him where we don't rest in his grace and his glory and the image that he has given us. So what causes you to forfeit your grace? Another way of asking this question is what keeps you from weeping for the people of your community, of your world? See, Jonah forgot the greater charter. Israel is supposed to be a blessing to the nations. For from Genesis on, the scriptures went on and on that Israel is to be that light. It was to be that mountain the nations were supposed to run to and enjoy God's grace. This was his opportunity to take the gospel to Nineveh, to see the most evil, vile nation transformed from the inside out. This is his opportunity to be like his God and to weep over the nations, to love the nations, and he abandoned that call. Over the last year, year and a half, uh, very difficult things happened at Grace Community Church, the church I previously pastored. In one situation, there was a young man, and he had some, some very severe issues. Uh, the ones I can mention are his anger and his pride and his lack of self-control, among other things, are very destructive in his life. And on two different occasions with our list servant actually in public worship, he acted out in very inappropriate ways, and it scared some folks, and it caused a lot of trouble. And there's a leader in my church named Nate, and he was amazing in how he stepped up in both of those situations. And we had a key leaders meeting to figure out what to do with this troubled young man and the chaos he was creating for our worship service. And I was blown away by Nate's repentance at that meeting. As Nate was sharing, he was like, you know, I'm just angry with him. I'm angry for what he did, and I'm angry how he, oh my gosh, how he... How he 
this is a worship service of Jesus, and look what he did, and I'm frustrated with what he's done, and not only in the service, but to all of us. And, and then you start talking about how he's frustrated with how difficult it was to love this young man, and all the time, and the effort, and the work it took. And then he was talking about his lack of desire to love him because of all these things. And then Nate took it a step up. He began to realize that he didn't think this young man was worthy of his love. And that got them. It's rare to watch someone get to their core issues and then grieve over them at that very moment. How are you hating your sin? See, this, this, this verse is borrowed from Psalm 31 that talks about hating these worthless idols. The New Testament goes so much further where the apostles tell us to love what is good and to hate what is evil. And Paul himself in Colossians 3 tells us to put to death the idols of our hearts. Look, you're like me. You know how to enjoy your sins. You know how to make friends with them. You, we know how to domesticate them and like potty train them. But we, we live life with our sins. Oh, you know, I was joking around with my wife and a friend of ours this, this past evening. I know how to hate other people's sins, Right? Man, I can see your sin and hate it and be so frustrated with my own. You know, I'm like, do I have any stories? You know, it's, 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 we don't know how to do this. So you might ask, how, how do I learn to hate a sin? Or a particular minister gave a question to me, and I found it very helpful. How does the specific sin harm you, your family, your church, your community? You can take sins that we have made friends with that are maybe benign to us. They're just as harmful as the ones that aren't benign to us. For example, uh, many of you in this room work really hard and you work really long hours. Some of you men in this room are, are really okay with almost abandoning your wife and kids for your prestige and your accomplishments. Some of the moms in this room, you worship your children and your life revolves around them, right? Some of you women, you love beauty, you, you, not in its pure sense, but, but in a way that's been offered to you by its culture, and you kill yourself to match certain patterns of beauty, and you men in this room encourage that, right? What does that do to you? What does it do to your spouse? What does it do to your kids? What does it do to your neighbor? What does it do to your church? What does it do to your city? When you begin to see how the sins that you think are absolutely benign have you by the throat or destroying you, and you begin to see the harm it inflicts upon you, it makes you hate them. It creates space for Christ. It creates space for repentance. But you can go farther than that. How does it tarnish the name of Christ? How does your sin rob Jesus of his glory? <laughs> Often I found in the city that I've come from, and I'm sure I'll find this to be true in Orlando, is I find when I go out into the city and the community and make friends and with new neighbors, I find I'm apologizing for the church all the time. Because we Christians have done a horrible job of giving Jesus weight and glory for who he is. And so I found myself repenting on the behalf of the church for all the horrible things we've done. For example, you know, if you're consumed with your job, you know, if you're not really loving your neighbor and your neighbor's looking at you, their assumption might be like, well, why would I ever want to go to church or worship Jesus? You're not really that different from me. And that's their picture of Jesus. He's this impotent man who can't do anything that's there for the weak just to buff them up. 
Instead of saying that Jesus is the king of glory that's come to utterly transform the world, to bring the new heavens, new earth, and to transform all of mankind, that he's come by his grace and glory to create a new humanity that's empowered by him that can do absolutely anything in his grace, in weakness, in humility, in meekness, to be used by him to change the world. You see, sin begins to lose its luster when there's room to see Jesus in his glory. Here's another way of looking at it. Jesus absolutely hates your sin. The Holy Spirit's totally grieved by your sin, and they're inviting you to join him. They're inviting you to have that same hatred and to have that same grief. So how are you learning to hate your sin? Who do you invite in your life to help you to hate sin? And what idols are in your life that need immediate attention? One of the things I thought about for my own personal application, I want to share this with you, is I realized I really don't know how to hate sin. And the Bible thinks it's really, really important. And maybe something's wrong with how I do Christianity. And maybe it needs an overhaul. The last thing I want to point out from this passage is repentance invites us not only to engage and to cry out and to hate, but also to rejoice. Look at Jonah 2.4. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. Okay, this is somewhat promising. Jonah is beginning to realize maybe he's done something wrong. But again, there's no ownership of what he's done that's wrong. But he also doesn't understand the gospel. He hasn't been cut off from God. Being in a belly of a fish is even a picture of his grace to him that he didn't let him commit suicide, but rather God would preserve his life. See, Jonah, it's not about your works. We're like Jonah. We don't get it either. We often feel revert back to our actions, our works, our deeds to feel good about ourselves. Here's a way to look at it. If you're doing your city Bible reading, you know, if you're praying in your city groups, if you're attending the various functions, if you're uh, working at Restore Orlando, there's all these things you can do to make yourself feel great about who you are. And when there's that lack of activity and productivity in your Christian faith, you can start feeling like, gosh, maybe I'm not doing well. Maybe God doesn't receive me or enjoy me. And so what do you live off of? What gives you peace? Is it that you're a son or a daughter of your father in heaven? See, real repentance involves taking ownership over God's abundant love. It doesn't matter whether you feel like or not. It doesn't matter whether it seems true or not. It's worth fighting for. For you to rejoice in God's grace to you, you have to go beyond just remembering the gospel. You have to keep re-remembering the gospel until it becomes a burning fire that warms your cold heart. This is what makes the truths that you remember realities that you worship. Look at Jonah 2.6. The roots of the mountain I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever, but you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. Yes, God did save his life. But where's the thanksgiving? Where's the soft-heartedness? God saved his life, and it really didn't seem to change him. Isn't that true for us? We can rehearse the gospel. We have our favorite sayings from Ted or other pastors that influenced us. We, we can spit out the truth of God's grace to us, but in a way that has no relevance or bearing to our hearts. Well, how helpful is that? Look at Jonah 2.7. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. My prayers rose to your holy temple. This is what's interesting. God didn't save Jonah because Jonah remembered God. Jonah was saved because God remembered Jonah. 
when you begin to see that that's the reality for all of us, that it's not our actions and performance that garners God's attention, but what brings God saving and gracious help in our lives is his hold of us, his remembrance of us, his affection of us, his knowing of us. This is when our hearts melt, and this is when we begin to rejoice. See, Jonah, he gives us this awful prayer of repentance to remind us that we need to rehearse. We need to re-remember the salvation that's been given us. We need to rethink the gospel and all, all its implications until it changes us, until it provides thanksgiving, until we with Jonah can join him and say that salvation belongs to the Lord and mean it. So how did this prayer end? This is what I found fascinating from the text. How did the prayer end? Well, he, he prays this eloquent prayer, and then Jonah 2.10, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So what do you think of his prayer? I can tell you what God thinks, and it's easy to see from the text. It made him nauseous, and all he could do is cause the fish to vomit him out. Look, look the passage could be written anyway. The fish returned Jonah to the dry land, you know, the fish deposited him. No, it vomited him. You know, he prays this amazing prayer. And next thing you know, he's on dry land covered in fish goo, right? God was telling him something, you know? It's like, oh, maybe this wasn't a pleasurable experience. The gospel is that God loves us even when we're pathetic. That's what's so beautiful about this passage. It's not Jonah's repentance that gets him grace. It's God's grace that puts up with this pathetic repentance. He lacks heart. He lacks substance. He's hypocritical. His repentance needs repentance. And that's what Jesus did for him. If you remember your gospels early in the life of Jesus... There's a moment where he was baptized by John, and not baptized the way we're baptized, but baptism of repentance. And so he, he descended in water, and it's a repentance where you go, you know, God, I'm giving you everything. I'm living for you. I'm turning away from the sins I've committed. And, and in that moment, the clouds opened. The Father spoke. This is my son whom I'm well pleased. The Spirit descended upon him. It's a very glorious moment, but you sometimes need to ask the question, why did Jesus repent? He never sinned. He, never, he didn't have to turn back. He actually abides in his father. It makes sense for everyone else at the Jordan River to repent, but not Jesus. Until you think about this prayer. Jonah, he needed repentance for his repentance. Jesus, in the baptism of repentance, by John the Baptist, by the Jordan, there repented, not only for Jonah, but for me and for you. And it's his repentance that counts. He, the blameless one, took upon our sin. It's a picture of what comes in the cross. He, the holy one, who did nothing but enjoyed his father, took upon our shame on our unrighteousness. And all of that was nailed to the tree. It was nailed upon Jesus. When we look upon Jesus on the cross in the scriptures, it's gruesome. He was whipped and beaten and he bled and he suffocated in his own blood on the cross. But what was more horrific was the wrath of the Father descending upon him that was naked to our eyes. When we begin to see the one who repents on our behalf, when we begin to see his love, his affection, and everything that he has done for us, that's what liberates us to repent. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. 
And if his kindness is lukewarm to you, Jonah invites you to engage, to cry out, to hate, and to rejoice. Because when you see the one who repents on your behalf, who remembers you constantly, who will not let go of you, oh, it liberates you to be a new man, a new woman that will do nothing short of repentance, that you may be full of him and taste the richness of his mercy. Let's pray. Father, we don't like to mention how pathetic we are. And we don't want to engage how much our own repentance in our lives needs so much repentance. But Father, this gospel, this good news is true. We are the men and women that run. We are the men and women that perform religiously. We are the men and women who make a mockery of the cross and how we live out the gospel. And we beg you to forgive us. But Father, we want to learn how to repent. We long to see the one you've given us, Jesus. We beg you to use your Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see his love and his grace and how he holds on to us. And we beg you to make us men and women to engage and cry out and hate and rejoice because we're lost in holy amazement of your love. So Father, please begin to change us from the inside out and renew our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.